I want to go back to one of the things you talked about, which is kind of interesting because you just said it as an afterthought, um, which was that someone asked you to review a medical director agreement and in it, it said it turned them into a general partner. How do you sign that? And what uh, this is actually an excellent example. I mean, what what the hell is the difference between a general partner, a limited partner? I mean, how, how can that make any difference? But let's assume for the sake of argument that you're the wealthiest person with liquid assets in that little tiny organization and say you're a medical director for a spa and that ultimately um, it, you believe that you never have to participate or show up except once a month, you, you know, you look at some documents, sign them and collect a check, but things go bad for the group. What does that, those, that one word or the two words general partner, how might that impact your um, asset protection plan or lack thereof? Well, you've you've taken what already is a risk that we all know about. So if you're a medical director, um, you're putting your license on the line and there's a certain responsibility uh, for proper supervision and delegation that you're taking on that you need to be aware of. And that's the normal conversation. Then you add on the business element of becoming a general partner and trying to say this in a way that doesn't put us all back into law school again. Uh, if you're a general partner, the way the law works is if two general partners get sued or a partnership gets sued that has a general partner in it, that general partner is liable jointly for the liabilities of that partnership. And so it can be anything. It can be business disputes. It can be a patient dispute, any liability. It could be a, a bank loan, um, the lease all the normal business things, um, you would have that general partner be liable for it. And in this case, our clients was going to be individually the general partner, mm -hmm. which means that his entire personal estate was being put at risk for the business of this medical spa where, you know, the idea was he was just going to have general supervision and delegation of other providers. Yeah. And the important thing to take away is to understand that even if he was owning 1% of the general partnership or being paid $1,000 a month of the general partnership, he would still be could be responsible for 100% of all the liability and risk associated with it. So it doesn't in, – in a, in a general partnership, it doesn't make a difference how much, quote, ownership of the partnership you have or how much compensation from the partnership you're receiving – you're on the hook for everything. If it, I don't know what the right malpractice analogy would be, but if an attorney ever allowed that to happen, it would be a catastrophic uh, set of legal advice that would create uh, a massive uh, amount of liability for uh, for that lawyer. But here, of course, we know there was no lawyer involved. That was just a you know a, a form that got passed around. Yeah, pause to digest that for a moment. I want our listeners to pause to digest that. Those are just two words. We're the sole general partner, and you end up receiving only a tiny, potential tiny portion of the benefits of that arrangement, yet you agree to shoulder, in this case, 100% of the risk. Seems like a pretty rotten deal, and it sounds like um, had this this individual not been not, if you didn't make it easy for him to get legal advice, he very likely would have said, all my buddies have done it. I'm just going to sign on the dotted line. And the truth is, he may have gone his entire career without there never being a problem. 
But if there was a problem, it likely would have been a very big problem. Yeah. And, and, you know, I, I know this guy, he's very trusting. He has a good read on people and it looks like this person that he, that he may end up still doing business with is a really good person. The problem with this set of circumstances is that that other person can't even rescue him from it uh, or m may not be able to. So in other words, you mean financially, financially. Yeah. If a creditor, yeah. If, you know, a creditor comes in and is trying to collect and, uh, you know, the person doesn't have the funds to do it, the creditor can just go towards, you know, this other person, the doctor, and, um, and you know, there's nothing really that can that other person can do to, to stop it. No, doctors resist getting advanced legal advice. It's interesting. Almost every doctor, perhaps all doctors have accountants. Why do not all doctors have an attorney, if nothing more, to review their employment agreement. Um, I know, I know, mea culpa, when I got my first job, I got a two-page document. I was interested in two things. One, how much was I getting paid? And number two, what was my call schedule as well as vacation? I didn't even know how to ask the right questions about who's going to pick up tail coverage for professional liability. What are my other responsibilities? Can I can I moonlight and have some, you know, a life outside of my practice? I mean, I, the list goes on and on, but I was so excited. I got my first document stating we're, we're ready to bring you on board. And the number was higher than I, you know, certainly higher than when I was a resident. Um, mm -hmm. So everything was moving in the right direction. And interestingly enough, I didn't get a final document from them until about eight weeks before I was supposed to start. And honestly, at that point, I didn't even know if I had a bona fide job, but I didn't even know. My fear at the time was that I don't want to rock the boat. If I, you know, get an attorney to look at this and they say it doesn't have X, Y, and Z, my perception was I had no leverage whatsoever. They'll just pick someone else. And, you know, I could I live with it? And the question is, could I live with it? And but I didn't even know to ask the question to have an attorney uh, look at that. What are your I, thoughts? I, Why do yeah. doctors resist getting an attorney when everybody has an accountant? I mean, you know you have to file taxes uh, every year, so maybe you can't escape it. Um, and maybe people don't know enough people who have had legal problems with their medical practice over time. <laughs> if you live long enough, you'll definitely get to see the whole collection. I mean, everybody has some interaction with the law over time. We never got any of that in medical school, residency, fellowship. It's hard enough just learning how to master the technical and clinical aspects of, of your craft. And I wish I had some interaction with or understanding of regulatory components, medical legal, finance, business, got none of that. I mean, you ultimately do pick it up and you find decent advisors over time. But but why do you think that um, we all are naked when we first leave the um, you know fellowship training. I think it 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 ties Sorry about to, the image I, guys. I apologize <laughs> for that. I think it ties to the the lack of of education on the business side of medicine that happens in training, and and so you just painted a picture of what we commonly see, which is a a real intimidation by the 
you know, how to even what what can you do or what should you do or who should you ask about these things? And so there's a lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge, which then makes it hard to have hard conversations. It feels really awkward to even ask questions about the contract because there's this, you know, unknown going back to your story, Jeff, of, you know, are there five other doctors waiting in line to take this job if I, you know, do anything other than sign it? And, uh, and I think that that represents a really common feeling that we see from doctors who are starting out, I'll say less so over the recent years than, you know, 10 to 15 years ago, but still predominant problem. And then even with that, that's just a, in our world, that's just a basic employment agreement. I mean, mm -hmm. Yeah, and I was gonna add in as far as that goes, it goes back to the same thing you just said. Vast majority of time, the docs only caring about one thing, their comp. And you actually went further than a lot of docs even trying to figure out your call schedule. Um, you know, we see have docs that don't even understand how they get a patient. They don't know how to bill or collect because you've been in residency for so long. And it's 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 always it's always flattering when we spend a, um, a little bit of time on a call with a, 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 a brand new physician with their first contract. And they'll tell us, you know, I've already kind of reviewed it and I, re I feel pretty confident, but I was told that I need to get an attorney and that you guys do this. So let me know what your thoughts are. And we'll, we'll outline all the risk known for it. Like, as you said, sometimes it's the, there's some bend, but don't break areas. And sometimes mm -hmm. they'll make some modifications. It's shocking to hear every single time afterwards, like, wow, I, I had no idea I missed all that. And I, you know, I read it multiple times, but that goes back to, you know, I know what I know and they don't know what they don't know yet. And I think that, and then there's a fear. The other thing is there's an absolute fear. It's going to cost me, you know, $30,000 to have some attorney review my contract. And at least for us, very similar to what we do with the Access Plus program, we just do it on a project fee and say, look, this is exactly what's going to cost you for us to analyze it and get back to you. And if you want us to negotiate part of it, this is what it's going to cost. And so we put it all out there just like we do with anything else. So the, the, the end user knows what the expectations are. And we seem to seem to get continue to get good results because uh, we've been doing this for 20 plus years now, and the, the the docs keep coming back to us year after year. And I'll just add to because that's just the tip of the iceberg. And we talk about risk and what are the stakes for why they're not doing anything. And you know the reality is is the business of medicine on the physician side, the provider side, has become a compliance culture. The world's changed, so. What used to be an early in our career on the hospital side, you saw, you see just a, a culture of compliance that really didn't extend all the way down to private practices. And, uh, and I would say since 2009, we've seen a shift and it more and more focus on medical practices. Even during this pandemic, uh, when you look at the leniency on telemedicine, and uh, and and from a HIPAA perspective, you look at some of the enforcement that's happened during the pandemic, and they've been focusing on the medical practices. So what? Why is that important? Well, we have one problem where we're trying to understand why aren't physicians hiring attorneys, and another problem where the dynamics and the risk has gone up for the last ten years, and. So that seemingly small uh, and understandable dilemma that happens when they're coming out of school with a lack of context and a lack of understanding 
compounds itself as they start, you know, literally get thrown into the pool, into the deep end in the, you know, the business of medicine and start having opportunities to do joint ventures and other arrangements and have things with real healthcare consequences thrown at them. I mean, I love the example of using an employment agreement as a reason to have an attorney eyeball the document. So we're aware of a radiologist in New York who loved her group. She came on board as a W-2 employee probably 20 years ago, signed an agreement, and here's what it said. It said, um, we'll cover your professional liability um, uh, insurance. We'll cover that. But it didn't really say what would happen if the relationship terminated, if the doctor left or if she was fired, um, who covers the tail? And tail in New York for radiologists ain't cheap. Here it was uh, the the opening bid and the final bid was $160,000. I mean, a ridiculously large number, yet the employment agreement was mute. Now, the good news is in New York where this took place is if the agreement is mute or silent on that, um, it errs in favor uh, of the employee. In this case, the radiologist, that was the W-2 um, provider for the group. And so she ended up with a good outcome, but she spent a lot of money litigating that to get to that outcome. In contrast, there are other states where the opposite is the default assumption. Namely, there's case law suggesting that if it, if it ain't in the agreement, it was never intended to take place and that if the doctor leaves or is fired, they are on their own. So that $160,000 nut would be the sole pride of ownership for the radiologist. And so what is my point? My point is, is that it really just takes a few minutes. And if the agreement says nothing about it, you can bring it up. I don't think there's any reason not to bring it up or have an attorney bring it up so you can fill in the gaps. What happened? I mean, it's not enough to say we'll cover your professional liability coverage, particularly when uh, tail coverage means different things uh, in uh, in different states. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, absolutely. One of the things we always talk to docs about is what happens when something's terminated. And 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 there's, a, there's we, we Michael and I have been giving a speech called the Big Five for years about five things that every physician should concentrate on their employment contract. Um, but one of the things is this you just hit is what are the expectations, right? You want before you sign any contract, any agreement in general, whether it's your employment agreement or your partnership documents, your bylaws, shareholder agreement, you really should have the alignment of expectations of, hey, what are we what are we agreeing to do, right? And then does this document reflect that? And then hopefully you have good counsel surrounding you, whether it's it's your office manager who's been at it for so long knowing that the, the tricks or your attorneys who's been a part of it to really advise you on each step of the way to make sure those those factors are covered and so going back to that terminate that your story yeah that's a big issue that michael and i often see is we're pointing out when you're turn when when you know in the beginning of time jeff everything's what you know rainbows puppy dog tails and cotton candy it's like getting married i mean yeah. most people don't have prenuptial agreement because they think look um I don't want to set a bad tone, you know, right. I'm, I'm in love. But unfortunately, as you know, some people want to change jobs for whatever reason. And they, when that happens, certain things have to occur, especially in, the, in the, the medical community. And who covers that tail insurance is critical. And how is it covered? So you end up terminating your contract 
because they haven't paid you in two months or they stole some, whatever the reason. Well, if the contract doesn't say that you can terminate for cause, can you terminate for cause? Those are important mm -hmm. questions. If you terminate for cause and you're the physician, shouldn't they have to pay the entail insurance because they're the ones that are messing, messing things up? So all those are factors we talk to our clients about. And going back to the very beginning of all of this is then they have to choose what is their risk. When they, they, have, they, they see what the contract says, they know what they expect, they want it to say, and then they have to choose. If I go join them, I have to assume certain risk. At least they have eyes hopefully wide open understanding what that risk is versus this the, the story that you gave. She probably had no idea that, that one day she could have been on the hook for $160,000 um, tail insurance. She was shocked that she was terminated. Um, she was there for 20 years, delivered great service, knew their families, knew their kids. They all grew up together. But I think what happened is broadly the group ran into some financial troubles and they were cutting costs and she was part, she was a part-timer. So they figured, well, you know, we can cut some and have a nice day. And by the way, because we're cutting costs, please don't expect us to, um, to chip in for the tail coverage. You're on your own. Yeah, it was a, it was a big shock. And I think most people, and, and we can go into the giant, but there are norms that are out there in terms of what, employers in healthcare as well as employees can and should expect for a typical type of agreement and if a if a contract violates so many of those norms you can expect that they may be a challenge to work for over time but you don't know that going into it yeah so um we don't have a lot of time left i would just want to spend a little bit of time about group dynamics um, in terms of what can make a group practice blow up so I just finished a pretty good book on healthcare called Healthcare from the Trenches. And it was an, about an amazingly successful, innovative hand surgery practice in South Florida. I had patients from South Florida, people from across the US, people from other countries. And, and then I turned the page and it said, like all good things, it had to come to an end. And apparently in this situation, there was a personality conflict with one of the several doctors that could not be resolved. And I, I guess my question to you is what makes group practices blow up and how do you prevent all good things from coming to an end or must it come to an end? I mean, I, I found it kind of shocking that the conclusion was like all good things, it had to come to an end. I think for many good things, they don't have to come to an end if you plan for it. What are your thoughts on that? And particularly as it comes, I mean, this isn't just a medical a medical legal question. It's it's kind of a group dynamic question and how to manage expectations in a in a growing organization. And you have that same challenge being part of the Bertadotto group. It's, yeah, it's no different. Yeah, no, I I would say that uh, there are some there are some dynamics that you could talk about where you know a bad apple gets in and can affect the culture. But the most common and the most controllable reason that the group practices succeed or don't succeed, and you even used the word just a second ago, uh, is unmet expectations. And so what does that mean? Well, you have to have good communication on the front end when you're setting it up. And if you have a good attorney on board with you, working through, making sure everyone knows that, hey, this is what I picture this to, how this is gonna work. And you talk about the things that you don't even know to talk about and everybody gets on the same page, it's great. But it's like a marriage. We've used that analogy already. You can't stop communicating. I mean, 
things will change in the practice over the years. And oftentimes with successful practices, they grow and the new doctor comes on and the new doctor is told to sign the document that everyone else signed, but they don't really know what they just signed on to. So they carry whatever expectations they have into the arrangement without knowing how it's supposed to work. And so you start having fractures and, uh, and that's, I mean, it, it sounds simple, but that really is how it happens. And so the, the big practices that stand the test of time are good communicators and they're committed to each other and they work through it when inevitably they are not on the same page about something that's happened. Yeah. And, and I'd add in the communication department is, is the communication by bringing, um, you know, as a, as a whole to kind of doing a, a check because Michael and I, over the years, we've developed, you know, phenomenal buy sell agreements that were perfect for a two person group, but then they added 10 more people. Well, you need to go back and revisit just because it worked for a two person group doesn't mean that that structure, your arrangement's going to work for everyone else. So as you grow and add on new physicians and, 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 and personalities change where some docs want to slow down, start revisiting your, your structure and making sure that those documents still reflect who you are as an organization. And sometimes as Jeff, you, you started off in the beginning of this uh, episode, we, you were talking about, uh, egos or, or doctors being the smartest guy in the rooms. Unfortunately, because of their smartest guy in the room, if you put 10 of them in the room, I'm not sure who the smartest guy in the room is anymore, but they'll let you know. And that unfortunately drives. Um, all 10 was, of them are. All, yes, all 10 are the uh, smartest okay, people okay. in the room. I was at a, a early in my career, I was in a meeting. It was late at night. A copious amount of wine was served. But it was a board meeting for a, a very large group. Always a bad idea. Yeah, well, trust <laughs> me, after this, the group said no more wine at our meetings. And two of the senior physicians um, started going after each other across the table to the point where the other physician, uh, pretty much if, if he was sitting next to him, probably would have clocked him. But uh, words were exchanged multiple times across that table. <laughs> and I thought the bottle at one point was about to be thrown and it, it goes back to they both felt very right as to what the document said and what they had agreed to. None of it, was, of course, was really written down. Written down. And, and so what happened was it's a perfect example of a group that started off with, uh, I think there was a six-person group. And by the time I was brought into this transaction, they had 35, 40 docs and right. partners of all different kinds of specialties. And going, I, you, Michael, you kind of said that that other doc had signed something a long time ago saying that that's what he thought he was signing. And it was it was it was bloody hell breaking loose. And that's why I think sometimes there was that lack of communications of that person coming in, lack of communications of keeping up with what the partners were trying to do. So and obviously it was all around financial numbers. This reminds me of a case we blogged about in the not too distant past, at least in the example you gave, it was a board meeting and there was alcohol involved. So you can kind of understand how people were a bit disinhibited. But in this example, the surgeon and the anesthesiologist in the room with a patient to sleep got into some little tiff and one of them knocked the other one out, got into Whoa. a fist fight with the patient on the table. And I, I don't know precisely what happened, but I don't know that it was a great idea for the patient, particularly, you know, if you knock out your anesthesiologist, <laughs> what, is, what is your plan B? I mean, <laughs> you're it. So it's kind of really, the anesthesiologist <laughs> didn't turn the gas on the on the uh, on the <laughs> surgeon. They've got a big toolkit. They can use uh, Karari or Pavulon to go ahead and stick a, a nice little needle into the doctor's neck and 
And then the uh, anesthesiologist there bag ventilating the doctor, basically saying, uh, you're going to be nice to me next time, then give him a breath. You're going to be nice to me next time, one more breath. <laughs> this got <laughs> real dark real fast. Real fast. <laughs> that's a little too much, uh, t- uh, too much um, inside baseball. One final question here. You have, I think we alluded to the two components to a successful group, whether it's in law or medicine, and it's going to be chemistry and competence. Can people get along with each other? Communication is a buzzword that you use, and and certainly you need people who are talented that are good at what they do. You've implemented um, an unwritten rule in your organization. I believe it goes by the initial N-A-R, with R being rule. Is Do you want to expound on that, or you want to just keep sure. that as an inside? Yeah. Because I I think it makes all the sense in the world. And the reason I say it makes a lot of sense, my first week in medical school, my anatomy professor went to the front and he said, if at the end of the first week, you don't know who the class schmuck is, you're it. You're the one. (laughs) And I think the point was that it should be patently obvious who the difficult individuals are, and you'll probably want to steer clear of them. Yeah, I mean, this is, goes back to from years of working in the, lots of different environments before I even joined a law firm. And unfortunately, sometimes you'll run into a person uh, who uh, is, is not a nice person to work with. They make your life miserable. Sometimes they're your boss, sometimes they're your, your colleague or whatever it ends up being. And so when we started this firm, we, we started, which was the uh, NAP policy. The NAP, no, N-A-T, yeah. N-A-P, no. Oh, N-A-P, yeah. A... A a person a- asshole. Uh, can you say that? Yeah, yeah, I've already I've already broken the rule several times with. Um, <laughs> so yeah, our, our no asshole policy is basically we want to have a place where everyone can feel comfortable working, have an environment where everyone feels like, um, which is true. We want everyone to succeed here, and unfortunately, sometimes those individuals make it about themselves and not about the the team. Going back to what we even talked about of of coming together as a team to work on projects together for a client because at the end of the day that's you're going to spend more time with the people you work with in your own family and i want to be in a place that's fun has a, a great work environment you work hard you play hard but at the end of the day it's a place where you're happy to show up and i i i won't say the individual's name but i i definitely had a boss at one point in my career that uh, I taught me a lot but nothing that would help me succeed in life and I, what I learned is those are not the individuals I want to surround myself with. And if I had the power to do it one day, um, you know, I, that's where I wanted to be. We extend it too. It's not just internal. We have the same with our clients too. I mean, yeah. you know, everyone deserves to to be treated a certain way. At least we feel like that. And uh, you know, it's it's not us taking it from a a mean client. I mean, it it's them taking it out on our staff or on some of the other attorneys and. Life's too short for that. Yeah, as they say, the customer is always right, but not everyone has to be my customer. (laughs) Correct. (laughs) Gentlemen, we are at the tip of the hour here. I can't thank you. And first of all, it's been a delight being a part of the Bertadotto organization. I thank you for the invitation. It's been an an honor and a privilege to participate. And I certainly look forward to many more years. Thanks so much for joining us today. Before we leave, any final thoughts and Please include how people listening can get in touch with you, both phone number as well as a, um, a website. Well, I'll start and plug our podcast where you've been a guest, the Legal 123s with Bertadotto. And then our website is bertadotto.com. And, uh, and 
all of our information is there. Yeah. Well, thanks again, Jeff, for having us. I always enjoy catching up with you and I uh, appreciate you bringing us on today. Just one final thing. I, I'd like to have you use, uh, this is just a suggestion, that the legal one, two, threes, I want you to do in Roman numerals going forward. So it'll be the legal I, 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 I's. <laughs> <laughs> on that note, we bid adieu. Thanks for listening. We'll catch up with everyone soon. Thank you. And with that, we're at the end of our broadcast. Thanks for joining us. In closing, a few messages. If you're an existing member of medical or dental justice and you find yourself on the receiving end of a medical legal threat, please contact us at 1-877-MEDJUST. That's 1-877-MEDJUST or 633-5878. Our STAT hotline is a service offered to all current members. It's designed to get your urgent medical legal questions answered ASAP. Members can also access a plethora of exclusive medical legal resources by logging into their members-only page, which can be accessed by our website, medicaljustice.com. Now, we want to protect as many doctors as possible. If one of your colleagues is in trouble, please refer him. When a current member of medical justice refers a colleague and that colleague becomes a member, you both receive a month of free protection. To refer a colleague, write to us at infonews, that's I-N, Epizen Frank O News at medicaljustice.com. That's info news at medicaljustice.com. Now, if you're not an existing member of medical or dental justice, but want to bulletproof your practice from medical legal threats, our admin, Wendy Cates, is your best resource for information about our protection plans, implementation best practices, and pricing models. Wendy can be reached directly at 336 358 5587. We offer discounts for large groups and protect doctors of all specialties in all states. Now, before we close, one last request. If you enjoyed this episode, please write a review on your preferred podcast provider and share our podcast with your colleagues. Reviews help maintain our podcast visibility, which in turn helps us reach a broader audience. This helps us protect more doctors. Thank you for joining us this week. We hope you'll join us on the next episode of the Medical Liability Minute.